Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word. And now may the uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, hey, thank you all. And uh, thank you, Danielle, for reading such a long verse. That was tough. I know. Um, yeah, the... Well, it's a good thing it was a short verse because we had a uh, we had a good long catechism time and it's quite a bit of sermon ahead of us too. So buckle up. Uh, Ray, Jared, and I had the opportunity to sit in on a conference uh, this week uh, that had several Q Q and A sessions with leaders who are attempting to pave a way for Christians to engage politically without compromising our faith commitments. And many of the attendees there were ministry leaders, and so. Uh, and the leaders were like a magazine president, uh, somebody who creates Christian resources, and actually a government uh, employee who, who researches ter terrorism and radicalization. And the most common question that went from the attendees to the, uh, up to the experts was this. It was, it was what do you think is going to happen this year in politics? Um, or questions that circled around that question, like how do we prepare for the coming turmoil of the year? And what threats exist out there? What, what should we expect? And so this is, this is the Christian leaders of, you know, there are hundreds of, of pastors like me. That was the question on their minds that they were trying to get answered. And what does that mean? That means that we're entering into a complex and uh, tumultuous uh, time in our country, potentially, or at least people are concerned about that, right? There's no getting around it. I've, I mentioned at the beginning of the year, and uh, this is... You know, the forecasts say it could be a little bit rough, and, and that's true. Now, there have been many other difficult times. Read your history books, right? There have been many, many difficult times. Uh, look around, geo, geopolitics, there are many difficult things happening now. But here, here in the U.S., um, you know, it, it's on people's minds. It really is. This is a destabilized time. There are a number of factors, technological, ideological, political, social, um, it's, there are a lot of factors that mean it could be a destabilized time. So, yeah, what do we, what do we expect? There could, be, there could be difficulties, there could be violence, there could be surprises. But then again, um, the presidential race could be really simple. And like I said at the beginning of the year, the Cubs might even win the World Series. And um, it could be, could be fine. So uh, if I were you, I'd be wondering, what did the experts predict at this event, at the conference, right? What did they say when they got those questions from pastors? Are you ready for what they said, what to expect? They don't know. They have no idea. Um, and they uh, were all pretty universal in saying, that's uh, really not what you leaders of Christians should be concerned about most, actually. Uh, engaging in that and trying to get people to engage in that is not the best use of your time. And I think they were right. Turns out they reminded us that tumultuous times have always been the case. Even in Jesus's times, things were unstable. Um, and so we need to anchor ourselves in something other than trying to figure out the times. So this evening, I want us to imagine being present after the baptism and temptation of Jesus, which is what we've just talked about uh, in the book of Mark. And uh, right here, during this moment of trying times that Danielle has just read to us about, um, imagine what it would have been like to encounter Jesus in the middle 
of a very confusing time. And then we'll wonder what that means for us today. So we're going to look at the times, the forecast, and the call to action. Really a, a lot of it back then, but we're going to ask, what does it mean for us if we are in such a time ourselves? So the times, right? I just described our times a little bit. Now, uh, here's, what, here's what we just heard. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So... We live in trying times. What about the time when this was spoken? If you were Jewish, as was Jesus's audience, or Roman, as was the audience of this book that Mark was writing from Rome, from the words of Peter, you would have viewed the situation very differently from those two perspectives, no matter what, with a certain amount of unease. If you were Jewish, you would have had the Roman government, um, oppressive in your mind, ruling over you. They are overtaxing you, imposing their civil religion that violates your deeply held principles. And the worst part of it would have been this, that they would be winning over many of your own people. So we know this is true. It's an oversimplification to, to kind of conflate some of these labels. So just, I know that, but, but think about the possibilities here. Uh, the Sadducees. This is a religious group you're probably familiar with if you've read the Bible or even heard about it. Um, so the Sadducees were conceding some of the contested beliefs in their culture. Um, so it, the Jewish faith believed in this idea of eternal life and raising from the dead to some degree. And the Sadducees had like loosened their grasp on holding to that belief because it was not really working in their time. And um, some of their, and so they're, they're releasing some of their strong convictions and tending to kind of comply with the Romans a little bit more in their point of view and in their behavior. And you could call that, you know, a little liberal. They were being a little flexible with their beliefs. They were, they were loosening up their grasp on those. Now, Herod is the king of Israel at this time, but he's just kind of a puppet king of the Roman Empire. He really, his allegiance is with Rome. He's fairly brutal. He's very in it for himself. Um, and he, in a sense, misrepresents the average Jew Jewish citizen. But in a way, he's bringing power and prominence back to Israel. Um, he has an impressive palace in the, mid in the midst of, of Israeli territory, and he has these ties to Israel. Um, in, and get this, he's investing in the religion of Israel. He actually is building a temple. And so if you, if you go to Israel today and you're going to go to the, to the you know, area where the temple was and you're going to go to the Wailing Wall, this is Herod's work. This is Herod's temple that he built. And so if you're a Jewish person, like he's kind of a problem, but he's also like the political leader that's investing in your religious faith, Right? Um, you, you could even like, you could throw a little label of like, he's conserving more of their culture and some of the things that are deeply held to them, even though he's a little polarizing, right? He, he's invested in their religion. He's invested in their politics. He's, he's really doing the most for them as a leader. You look back in retrospect and, and we look back historically and go as a bit of a facade, but if you're there in that moment, it's a little more complicated. He kind of kind of feels like your guy. Roman people, on the other hand, in the area, right, and, and where Mark is writing and where Peter is living when, when Mark writes his gospel, um, are in power. Um, Their people are in power, right? But were they really? Was the average Roman really in power? 
Well, you were if you were compliant. But you have to remember, they lived under constant fear. Now, we know Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, but this was not a very unique experience. Um, This is not a Jesus scene, necessarily. Um, The Romans crucified all kinds of people. Anybody who was deviant in their midst, and the crucifixion method was meant to communicate to those who considered defecting from the, the dominant Roman point of view. And, and they, what, what did it communicate? This will not only cost your life, but it will cost your dignity. It's undermining the martyr complex, right? The one who wants to be a martyr imagines the glory of their death, right? The, the, the glorious nature of going down as a, as a winner, as somebody who's done what's right and good, feeling the, the joy of, being, of doing something important, And the Romans ensured that you got no such feeling because crucified people were hung to slowly gasp for breath and suffocate naked with their failures printed above their head in front of the city gate where everyone could stare at them and see that their cause had failed and behold them in their shame. It utterly was meant to undermine the the martyr complex. Imagine if... Whenever you drove back into Tucson from Phoenix and you got off on your exit, that all of the people who our government had deemed failures were hung naked, gasping for breath, and there was a big sign above their head that said, here is what they stood for until we did this to them. That's what crucifixion was about, okay? So at this time, John the Baptist has been arrested. John the Baptist. Um, To Peter, whose stories we're telling, John uh, is, though though a polarized figure in some people's minds, he is a hero to Peter and therefore to Mark, right? And a hero to most of the people who are interested in the story of Jesus. Now, John was a polarizing figure because he doesn't fit the boxes of his time and situation. Remember I said the Sadducees were a little more liberal in in their approach, right? And so what's the alternative? Well, you have the Pharisees of Jesus' day who are far more committed to the religion and tradition, to the scriptures. But John the Baptist is very hard, truly harder on the Pharisees. He is. You read his his life, and Jesus seems to carry that forward to some degree. So here comes John the Baptist. He's calling people to repent and prepare the way for the Messiah. He calls out Herod. He calls out the Sadducees. He calls out the Pharisees with very stern words. He calls out the sellouts in like every direction. He doesn't fit into the categories. And we can't call him like one thing or the other. Like in our day, you can't really put him in the liberal box or the conservative box. Back then, you can't put him in the Sadducee box or the Pharisee box. And he's not a Herod guy. What is it? What is he really? And so... He's, he's alone. He doesn't have a powerful entourage. He doesn't have a shelter. He doesn't have a community of people who like look out for him and take care of him. He's alone except for his disciples. And some of those who followed him were people like Andrew, Peter's brother, who eventually brought Peter in. And Peter is telling us these stories. And we know that they had left John because John had said to go follow Jesus. And so John is kind of alone. And then he gets arrested. So John didn't fit the categories, but he was, he was a hero. He was a hero to Peter. He would have been a hero to Mark. He's a hero to the Christian community. And look, 
personally, I, I relate to this to some degree. Some of my heroes, and many of you know this, are those that don't easily fit in the molds, who can, who can work across the aisle, but who can also stand up when they're convicted and don't just fit in, in some of these boxes. I, I relate to this. Uh, people, for instance, who can't be bought by money, power, and respect, but who choose to do what's right, even if it doesn't benefit their, their team, their group. I would like to be more like those type of people, right? I hope I'm becoming this way. And so I imagine the type of people I view in this way, and I wonder if you all have any people that you view, you go, that's, I look up to them for whatever reason. Like that's, I want to be that kind of Christian in, in our world. Think about that person being arrested by a figure who confuses you like Herod, who is also hard to categorize. Where you go, Herod sometimes is like the best thing we have going for us. Herod sometimes betrays our principles, though. And he has just arrested my hero. And this is getting really confusing for me. Right? I mean, Herod, like I said, he's, he's doing everything for the Jewish people in a way. But he also, I mean, this is the kind of guy, he, he, he killed one of his wives and two of his sons. I mean, he'll, he'll turn on anybody, right? That arrest would spin you into some turmoil. It would concern you deeply. Um, if, if somebody like that was arrested and silenced, it would make me feel very anxious for the cause of my faith and my community today. It really would. If somebody I looked up to and I said, they're, they're doing a good job. If they were arrested, I would be very worried. So John is arrested and then Jesus, it says, came into Galilee. Remember, these stories in Mark are very short. They're very succinct, so every word counts. Why does it matter that Jesus went to Galilee? Well, if you look at like a map of the area, you see Jerusalem is up and Galilee, or sorry, Jerusalem is down and Galilee is up. And so John has been baptizing at the Jordan River in the middle. And so the, the you know, if you've got John is now arrested, he's probably going down to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Galilee. He's going the opposite direction. And if you're, if you're one of the disciples and you're thinking that like John has been a, a good person and, and Jesus is following in his footsteps and is continuing the work, and now Jesus is moving the opposite direction from John, what does that feel like? It feels like at a moment of turmoil, Jesus is going the wrong way. He's moving away from the fight. He's moving away from the solution. He's moving away from helping his friend John. He's moving in the opposite direction. We can imagine the disciples being kind of torn about this. I, I imagine a, a conflict avoidant disciple goes, Jesus, th thank you. I'm, I'm really glad we're going to Galilee right now. This is a, definitely a good idea. We can regroup we can now like bolster things up. It's going to be great. And then perhaps someone like Peter, who tends to move into conflict, is like, hey, you know, uh, what? Like, I'm ready. We're ready. Like, let's, let's go get John out of there. Let's, let's do something about it. We don't, we don't know what they said. We don't know how they felt. But we know this is a time of turmoil, and we can relate to that. Some of us want to engage in fight, and others of us want to turn and distance ourselves and how one engages in such times depends on the forecast of what we expect to happen. So what do you, in our day, expect is going to happen next? 
in God's redemptive history, what do you think is the next move? And how do you expect that to come to pass, right? I want you to think about that. What, what's God's next move in redemptive history in your mind? And how do you expect that to come to pass? Let's look at the forecast Jesus gave uh, here to his disciples. So after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, goes the opposite direction, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of God, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. These are substantial things. What do they mean? The gospel of God, um, what is that? I've, you've heard many times, gospel is good news. It was a common term for headline news. So Jesus is claiming to carry God's headline news that is of utmost importance. And what, what he says, how we define that, is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, how many campaign slogans say something like that? The time is now, or they imply it, right? We're going to win. This is it. You can have hope. It's going to be great. Victory over our enemies. The time is now. But this goes deeper than just a campaign slogan for a Jewish person. Because you have to ask, what time were they expecting? The time of what? And a Jewish person is awaiting their Messiah, a savior figure. This is a known expectation. They've expected it to come through a powerful political leader. Um, And Jesus is saying this, and it would have piqued their interest. I would bet money that some of them were sharpening their swords, struggling to fall asleep at night because they anticipated anticipated an uprising that they were about to be a part of. The time is now. So they're going the wrong direction, but the time is now. Okay, he's got a plan. We're going to do something. Um, Something's going to be good. And then when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he didn't just mean like, a new kingdom is beginning, even getting into like ancient definitions of the kingdom of God. It's the rule and reign and authority of God. So he's saying the rule and reign of authority of God is breaking in. God is making a move. The time is now. Okay. So Mark here is capturing this theme. He's delivering this punchy little story of a theme that Jesus shared over and over. So this doesn't mean he just said it here. This is probably something he repeated over and over to them. The time is now. The kingdom's at hand. So they're going the wrong direction, but they're also feeling like Jesus has a plan. Okay? Jesus has a plan, which makes the pairing with the next phrase, the next phrase that's coming, even more strange and confusing. Because the call to action based on this feels off, counterintuitive, a little bit silly. Actually, before I get to it, um, I want to mention that it's going to sound, it's going to feel kind of like the triumphal entry uh, that happens later in the Gospels, where you know Jesus rides into Jerusalem. This is toward the end of his life. And the people shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's in Luke 19, Matthew 21, John 12 as well. Um, Did you know that triumphal entries were normal things um, in their day? Actually, that that a ruler would return from battle, and they'd ride in the front gate of the city on a war horse. And people would yell out something like, Hosanna, which means save us. Like, they would say, like, you can do it, you know, save us. It was a very political event. And this was a very common event. So this is a depiction of, of a, uh, you know, you've got Julius Caesar, and, and this is a triumphal entry de- depiction, not Jesus's, right? Another very interesting one, one of the more famous triumphal entries, was actually this one here, which is when the Romans actually sacked the Jewish temple and took all of the Jewish, uh, like, you know, 
worships, like the, the, they've got the menorah, they've got things out of their, their temple, and they carried them back to Rome. And they had a triumphal entry where everyone, you know, cheered, hooray, they've destroyed the Jews, right? Triumphal entries are, are a very typical political event in this time. In fact, uh, just days before Jesus's triumphal entry that we often read about in the Bible, Pilate, the one who turned Jesus over to be crucified, who washed his hands of the guilt of Jesus, but the the political leader in their area had ridden triumphant into the city um, through the front gate two, three days before Jesus did on, on his war horse. And everybody had gathered and said, save us or something to that effect to Pontius Pilate. Thousands would have filled the streets to praise him. And then a few days, days later, Jesus rides in to the city. But how? This is very important. He doesn't come in the front gate. He comes in the back gate where nobody cared in a way. And the word spread and people gathered. And when he rode in, what does he ride in on? It's such an interesting scene. A youth, a baby donkey. And, and if you've been to the, the petting zoo at the Pima County Fair, they've got one of these usually most years. It's like this big, a kind of meandering, confused little beast. If you've ever ridden a little donkey, it's not the same as a stallion. Um, a stallion, you know, you know, you're trotting in. The donkey kind of bobs back and forth and meanders, tends to eat stuff. It's odd. One preacher I heard express this. He said that the most likely scenario is that Jesus looked so big on this little animal that his toes dragged in the dirt. Keep that imagery in mind when you hear Jesus' call to action and ask, when Jesus makes his political move, what's different and why is it different? What's he teaching us when he rides in the back gate of Jerusalem on a little baby donkey. This isn't weakness. This isn't inaction. It's something very different. Very different. Okay, so the call to action. Keep that imagery in mind. I think that imagery matters because that's how Jesus continues his political journey. After John was arrested, reading our text again, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. The time is now. It's time for change. This is our moment. Now repent and believe in the gospel. This, I know reading the Bible is like, it, it takes work. I want you to understand the discontinuity between these two things. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time has come. Repent and believe. This is a strange pairing. I was trying to think of, I've been watching basketball. You know, it's basketball season. So you know, they, they give the coaches the microphone and you get to hear them like, you know, pepping up their players. And so I was thinking about this, you know, your team's down by three, fourth quarter. You're in the playoffs. There's a few seconds left. And the coach grabs the team and he goes, this is our time. The time is now. We've got this now. Don't forget the other guys. They're just trying to win. Sportsmanship. Be kind. 
Humble yourselves. Look in their eyes and remember, they're just like you. They want to win. And love them because they are very special to me. And, they, and the team goes, huh? What are we doing? Is, like, is, is there a pep talk or did like Mr. Rogers just like insert himself into our huddle? Like what, what that's, the continuity is strange. It's the time is now, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. Like it doesn't seem to fit. And as Jesus' message develops, and as he continues his ministry, this feeling of discontinuity continues to grow in moments like his unorthodox triumphal entry, as I said. It's almost, it almost feels like a mockery of what the Romans were doing. Jesus is engaging, but in a very different way. In moments such as the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Peter pulls out his sword to protect and defend Jesus. And when you read that, you should, you should just be like, yeah, of course he would. Like Jesus is being arrested. This is, a, this is a terrible moment. He has a sword. He's ready to roll. This is what he's been preparing for his whole life. And he cuts off the, you know, the Roman soldier's ear. And, what is, and he expects Jesus to say, my guy, right? Yes, the time is at hand. But Jesus says, put your sword away. And he picks the ear up and he lays his hand on the side of the enemy's head. And he reattaches his ear and he heals him. What? This, is, this discontinuity is, is confusing. It's what is happening? This is different. What does it mean? What does this mean for us in trying times? Peter here, he's older. He's reflecting on these stories. He's reflecting on his journey with Jesus. And, and this is exactly what he wants to tell us, that Jesus began to proclaim to them in the midst of trying times. The time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. And I have a different way for you to engage. So what does it mean in a very contentious election year, one in which the number of stateside radicalizing individuals is near, if not beyond, an all-time high? Did you know that? In which political violence is a real possibility, in which the very principles that define our republic seem to be in jeopardy. It means, Christian, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, of course, it's very important to unpack that a bit more because we can take those concepts and interpret them in many different ways, right? We can, in, we can interpret them in many different ways. But fortunately for you, Mission, Mission Church, we talk about these concepts all the time. I hope they're getting stuck in your head. So repent. Contrary to popular belief, uh, repent does not mean stop it. It does not mean do the right thing. Because right thing can be very subjective when considered as a standalone concept. The right thing based on what objective, right? According to what standard, right? It doesn't mean do what's best for you, be your true self. It doesn't mean conform to what society or any other institution, including the church community you might be in, expects of you. It doesn't mean say you're sorry and promise to never do it again. It doesn't mean a million things. Repentance means something. It means to change directions. And to change directions, one must change destinations and therefore motivations. And to do that, you have to have a change of mind and heart. In the Bible, a fun fact, a change of heart and mind are synonymous. You should know this. When you read something about the heart in the Bible, it's talking about what we modern people usually ascribe to the mind. It's not a change of emotion. It's a decision. The way you change your heart is not to feel different. It's to make a choice and move in a different direction. 
So the Bible and the, in the, or sorry, the heart and the Bible is the core of yourself. When the core of yourself makes a decision, your life begins to change. A change of heart includes making decisions that align with new conclusions. As many have said about marriage, and it's true, the emotions you desire will follow the loving choices and decisions that you make, not vice versa. Many of you have seen my illustration of this, but here it goes. Again, imagine that wall over there, right, is the destination and direction of my life. So say, what are my goals? Say, I want to succeed. I want to be noticed and appreciated. Maybe I want to have as little pain as possible. I want to feel safe and secure. These are my operating principles. This is what my life is about. I wake up in the morning. I want to succeed. I want to be safe. I want to avoid pain. I want to feel secure. So the things that I do, the decisions I make will be reflective of my destination, right? So I want to avoid pain. Well, I, I could see a situation ahead of me that's going to cause pain, and I can do one of two things. I can either avoid that situation, or I can decide I need to fight that situation to try to like, make it go away as fast as possible and mitigate the pain that I expect. I make that choice because of my goals, because of my motivations and the direction that I'm walking, right? So how, how, you know, how, how do I go about changing? Well, one, one way you could think about it is you experience something. So say I'm moving toward avoiding pain and I've decided to fight. I've decided to fight the thing and try to get it out of the way. And that goes really poorly. That just doesn't work. I have a bad experience. The fight is harder than I expected. I'm hurt. It, it, I don't avoid the pain. I could look at, look at that and go, well, that didn't work. So therefore, I'm going to avoid next time, Right? But, but do you see what's going on? I still have the same motive. I'm still moving in the same direction. I still have the same objective. I'm making a, a change, but my heart is in the same place. It may be effective you know, behavior modification. I may learn how to move life, through life a little bit differently, but at the core, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I may commit more acceptable sins but my motive is the same, right? Now, imagine this wall over here represents a new destination. And, you know, and, and I think, what if something's wrong with my core motivation? What if, some, what if my core motivation wasn't really best? What if there's a different one I should be walking toward, right? So, so what, what's, what's a good core motivation? Um, what about knowing the God who created me and being characterized by having loving relationships with others? Those are literally the two sides of the Ten Commandments. To know and worship the God who created me, to love my neighbor as I love myself. What if I were to make those my core motivations? And now I'm going to turn to that new calling and motivation and begin to walk toward that new goal Imagine how more profound of an impact that would have on my choices. I wouldn't just be moving in the same direction, doing it a different way. I'm making choices that move me in an entirely different direction for a different purpose, right? And I begin to walk toward that goal. Like I, I might start making choices such as, what does it look like to, to know God more deeply in this situation, even though there is pain that's possible? What would it look like to learn sacrificial love in this situation, even though there's something that scares me that stands before me? What if I am actually like deepening my experience of hope 
which is something that God is very committed to in my life, even though this thing in front of me could hurt. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a new destination and then impacts our choices, which will then trickle down, by the way, thankfully, into even emotional experiences that match it. You can read about the lives of some of the most, like the people who've walked into very terrifying and painful things when they've done it for the right reasons, they've actually experienced a lot of contentment, a lot of peace, a lot of hope. There are good emotions tied to repentance. So what does that have to do with trying times? Um, What is Jesus trying to say? At the event we attended, we were encouraged to ask a lot of different questions, such as, this is one of them, what is the purpose from God's perspective of our public engagement? What has God called us um, to motivate us? What is our destination in a way? Like, what is the goal, right? Those are very important questions. One, the Bible speaks to a lot. Some would say something like religion should stay out of politics. And I get that sentiment. There's some weird mashups out there. But Jesus never did say it. And I don't think the Bible ever gives us the opportunity to allow for a faith that does not impact our day-to-day choices. Many of us have been influenced more by Plato than Jesus in believing there's a spiritual realm and a physical realm and that they don't overlap. And that's simply false. It's not how the Bible paints the picture. It's not how it plays out either. The type of person you are, the motivations of your heart, shape the way you live and the choices you make. And politics as a concept stripped down is simply this, how you live in a community or a city together. Politics comes from the word polis for city. How do you live in a city together? How do you share life with other people? So your vote, the way you engage with neighbors, the policies you promote, the causes you fund, these all flow from from who you are, from your destination, from your motivations. Look, I want you all to participate in the shared life of our community. In fact, if believers disengage, it's not good for anybody. And these should flow from our motives, or in other words, our faith. We should participate as unique, distinct Christian people. And that's a complex thing to engage in. See, everyone inherently knows this and operates this way, I think. This is why people take faith out of the picture. This is why we critique politicians who lie, who manipulate, because we don't trust their motives. Essentially, we're saying your inner direction, your religion, is impacting your role in society. We want people to do things better and for the right reasons, which is to say we really want their motives to be aligned correctly. Okay? I'm saying, listen to this subtext. Almost everyone is saying, we know our motives must be engaged when we interact in public life. I think believers and unbelievers all at the core know that it's true. So what is our destination Christians. What is our destination? What does the Bible teach? What does Jesus mean when he says repent? Repent toward what? Turn from what to what? How does the kingdom come? I think the most critical vision of this is Revelation 21, 1 to 8 and and more. I'm just going to read it. This is the apostle John now given a vision of what's to come. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The sea was symbolic of chaos and the unknown. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, notice something, how God-centered this is. Who is at the center of the vision? God. Who has adorned the people of God like a bride coming down? God. Who brings justice in the end and parses out what is righteous and what is unrighteous? God, what about all the difficulties of life, the pain we want to avoid, the, su the successes we attempt and fail to attain, the disappointments, the tragedies, the trying times? God ministers to us, right? Wipes our tears from our eyes, assures us that death doesn't have the final say. So what would it look like for this new heavens and new earth to be our destination? That's what Jesus, the revelation to John, the scriptures are saying. If this vision brought about by God is your sure hope and destination, it will change the way that you live. It seems that the top priority would be to know and be known by God and live toward others as he's called you to, to be a faithful witness of this hope, exhibiting hope in your life and living out of its bounty. Sadly, the goal many of us have adopted is winning. But we don't ask the question of what does winning mean to Jesus? We focus on first the goals and how to win. Instead of asking, you know, what would it look like to be faithful and hope? What is winning in the eyes of God? What is winning? What would it look like for Christians to win this November, right? In regard to our shared life, what does God expect? There's a classic and very true summary that comes out of the Old Testament from a prophet named Micah who wrote some 750 years before Jesus. But guess what? During trying times, in fact, during a time when he was predicting the destruction of, their, of the holy city Jerusalem, their political and religious center. And what did that prophet Micah say? He said, God has told you what is good and what, the Lord, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Yes, there's action to take. There is. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I, there's a lot more in the Bible about this, 
But I think when you're there, when you're doing justice, you're taking action, but you're also loving kindness and walking humbly with God, you're winning in God's eyes. But to do that, and to do that faithfully, you need to believe. Repent, turn, and believe. This belief is not, by the way, even in the core of the word that's being translated here, it is not intellectual belief. It's not. It's not having answers or knowledge. It's believing in such a way that you actually trust and rely upon God deeply. It pairs very well with repentance because it actually has to do with making choices. See, to trust is not to know everything. Trust is to move in the direction. Trust is to, when you've turned to repent, is to take steps in that direction. In fact, you know, we think we need to know before we trust because we're rationalists at the core. We've been raised in this. We think, I will take a step when I know. But that's not, that's not belief. Belief is when you decide that something is good and right and true, whether you understand it or not, and you take steps in that direction and you actually lean your weight into it and say, is it holding me? The truth is that much of knowing is a result of trusting. This is why so often the life of faith is developed by walking in a direction that you're not necessarily sure of all the time. Imagine the disciples of Jesus, right? Did they know what Jesus was going to do next? Did they know how Jesus was going to pursue this kingdom and bring it to bear? They did not. But they had found Jesus and concluded that he was the one they were waiting for. And they began to walk with him, sometimes to Galilee, sometimes back to Jerusalem, sometimes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Because the destination we must decide is better and the one walking with us is more powerful, loving, and good. That's what it means to trust and believe. Look, very practically here, in this little text, John is arrested, right? John has been arrested and the disciples are now walking with Jesus to Galilee. That's the encounter they're having with Jesus in trying times. This is where I want to like bring the sermon series to bear. Their experience at this time, they're encountering Jesus. They're walking with him. And he's telling him, I'm bringing about my kingdom. The time is now. They're hearing that truth. And now they're walking with him. And they are literally walking and going, I don't understand what we're doing. I don't know what's next, but I'm with Jesus. And I'm choosing to trust him. Sometimes encountering Jesus is not to get the surety that you're hoping for. Sometimes encountering Jesus is not going to be feeling like you're winning or you're on the winning team. Sometimes encountering Jesus is going to be in a place where you do not understand what's coming next, but you're with Jesus. And if we all could feel that way throughout this year, this election cycle, that would be winning. If we could know that we know Jesus and we are with him, whether there's something scary or painful or whatever going on in the world, that we would have the hope of understanding that we are with Jesus. 
really. I would like to suggest we can deeply encounter Jesus in the, in, in the most trying times, in the midst of the most trying times. I want to lean into that. I, I would love your help as a community to walk with me in that. I hope we'll support one another in that. If we can learn one thing from the last election cycle, we biffed it when we, when we stopped walking with each other. Walk with each other. Because we can learn in that experience how to repent and believe the gospel. And I think we can expect when we change our destination and say, God, I believe you have a good future in which you bring a new city down to earth and in which all things are made new and you wipe away every tear from our eye. We believe in that to the degree that we're going to walk with you and trust in you, even if everything in us tries to pull us in another direction. That, that is not a calling to be passive, but to be loving and to exhibit creative action. Think about, think about those moments. This is far more complex, but think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's healing his enemy. He's saying, put away your sword. Think about the triumphal entry. He's not coming, he's not coming to town like the Roman conquerors. He's coming through the back gate on a little donkey. Think about what does that mean for us? What does it mean? to turn toward and to follow Jesus and hope in his kingdom and offer sacrificial love, forgiveness, and grace in the face of circumstances that seem to demand war. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, what a trying night it was. They were about to go to Gethsemane. Peter's sword is strapped to his side. Judas is plotting the betrayal. He's already put all, all the gears are in motion, Right? This is a trying time. And Jesus, the Bible says, knowing what was coming, which is incredible to me, took the bread of the Passover feast on the table and taught them to repent and believe. What do I mean by that? He said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me every time you eat of it. What's he trying to, what's he pointing them to? He's saying, I am about to be torn in half. I'm about to be broken I'm about to sacrifice myself for the forgiveness of many. Follow me. Remember, that is how I engage the world. I break on their behalf. This is the blood of a new promise poured out for the, for the forgiveness of many. Remember me every time you drink of it. I tell you the truth. I will not drink it again until I drink it new, anew with you in my kingdom. What is he saying? What does that mean? It's saying, trust me. I am covering over your sins and I am bringing about the new kingdom that I've promised you. I, I will be there. I will be waiting for you. I will be with you. Trust that this outpouring of grace and forgiveness, this costly mercy that I'm granting to undeserved people is actually going to, going to be more powerful than the ways that you thought we were going to engage. It'll be more powerful than your sword. Jesus is going to exhibit this with Malchus, the Roman soldier, that my mercy and my healing grace is more powerful than your sword, Peter. It's not weaker. It's more transformative. What had a chance at transforming the heart of the Roman world? A sword fight or healing power? Really? There were two kingdoms back then, right? Rome and the church of Jesus Christ. 
One still exists. Receive these things from Jesus. Repent and believe. Go into the world making kingdom of God decisions and trust God with the results and your emotions, even in tumultuous times. I'm going to pray for us. There will be two minutes of silence, and after that, we'll do the three weekly acts of worship the Christian church has always done. We'll put our money together. Um, we'll give. Um, we're going to trust God even with the, the core of what we live on, our finances. We're going to assert that his kingdom is worth investing in. Um, we're going to sing. We're going to try to have these truths sink down into our souls by singing them and remembering them. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper where Jesus, seriously, he calls us. This is a part of Christian worship on a weekly basis because this is such a countercultural call to receive a Savior and to go believe and follow after him. And we need to remember it. We need to eat this body and drink this blood and remember what it means. Um, and we're going to take two minutes of silence before that to pray. And just to enter us into this time, um, I'm going to pray, pray for us, and then I'll just drop off and uh, leave two minutes of silence for you. Let's pray. Father, I want to lift up uh, this, this little church, this body of believers to you. Um, God, I love these people, and you love them far more. Um, we do worry about the year that's coming up. Um, that's our human nature. And we pray that you would help us to repent and believe the good news, that you have good things in store for us, that you actually are carrying us into the future that you've always, always known was coming, that's far better than we could ever imagine, um, and that you've called us to bring your kingdom and to love and to do justice. Give us wisdom in how we do these things with hearts that are utterly devoted to you, where we don't compromise one bit of what it means to know you and be united to you, Jesus. As we come and partake of this table, let it sink into our hearts who you are, what you've done, and how we can follow you. God, as we think about giving, as we think about um, singing together, I pray that we would sing with our whole hearts, that we would truly um, let these truths sink in for us, that you would teach them to our souls. As we think about giving, I pray that you would assure us of your care for us, that you love us far more than the birds, that you provide for them every single thing they need. They just fly around and there's the food. And I pray that you would just remind us deeply how much you love us and that you would provide for all of our needs and that we would learn to trust in you. I pray that you would do that in our lives as citizens, our political lives, that you would remind us that you are taking care of everything that we need. You're watching over us. You're watching over us here in a country that's experiencing a lot of peace right now, as you're watching over believers in the Middle East, as you're watching over believers in Ukraine and Russia, as you're watching over believers in North and South Korea and all these places where times are even more tumultuous than ours. God, give us faith. Help us to trust. Lead us as we pray.